Hi, welcome back to the Port to Port podcast. I'm your host Gordon Rennie and this is episode four. Today's episode we had the privilege of interviewing Chrissy Clark, who's the Programme Manager for Diversity at Maritime UK. Chrissy's journey in diversity started in the mining industry in, in Australia and she's brought the experience back to, to put into play in what you could probably say is a comparable industry. But never mind me telling you all about it. Um, enjoy the podcast. Hi, Chrissy. Thank you for um, joining us. I've obviously I've done a, a wee intro there at the start, but I won't do you justice. So if you don't mind, if you can share with everyone who you are and, and what you do. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Gordon. I'm so delighted um, to be having this conversation with you today yeah. and shining a spotlight on diversity inclusion, which I'm just so passionate about. Um, so hi, everyone. Um, my name is Chrissy Clark. I'm the Programme Manager for Diversity and Skills at Maritime UK. I have been um, working in the diversity and inclusion space for ooh, about 10 years now, um, a little bit longer than 10 years. Um, you might notice there's a bit of a twang in my accent. Um, I have been living and working in Australia for the past 12 years. And to be honest, I kind of fell into the diversity space. It was always a big passion of mine, but I didn't really know exactly what to do with it. I think I did that career that so many people do where I left university and I didn't really know what to do. Um, I wrote a load of letters to try and find a job in London and ended up working for Andrew Lloyd Webber in the theatre sector. Oh, wow. Great. And it was a big eye to me because we always think that the theatre sector or the production sector is so balanced and they're so open to having the conversation about inclusion and in some aspects they are, but in some ways it was very backwards and especially them. But I had a fantastic CEO um, who actually sadly passed a few months ago now. Um, but I really got a lens into a world behind the scenes that wasn't actually as inclusive as I thought. But to be honest, I didn't know what to do with that. Um, it was a great way to work in production, but I didn't know the next step. I then moved to Australia. I went there thinking I'd be there for a month. <laughs> yeah, as you did. I got, I got to the stage where I um, didn't have a mortgage, was single, thought, I never took a gap year. Let's go somewhere a bit different. Let's challenge myself. I knew nobody there. That was probably a bit stupid of me. I had no idea what I was going to be doing there. I knew I didn't want to travel. I knew I wanted to work. Didn't know what I wanted to work in. So literally packed my bags, um, said I'd be there for a month, but I did the work in a holiday visa for a year just in case. And oh my goodness, I had, the first six months were atrocious. I mean, we moved to the other side of the world and it's familiar but different. I ended up working in a job, doing event management, which I loved, but it wasn't really for me. Um, I just didn't know who I was. I kind of lost a bit of identity. And so I, I, I never forget this one moment of going, well, it's that kind of moment of, do I fly or do I fall? Um, I thought I can just pack my bags and go home or I can change this around and just give it one more last shot. And I decided to do that because I had nothing else to lose. Um, so I got a, a really good flat share with a fabulous person. I applied for another job. Um, it was just a contract role working at Ella Bachet head office doing beauty care and looking after their marketing communications and Somehow I fell into HR there as well. And it was really quite amazing. And I really started to like it. But I thought, okay, well, I I need to see where this can go. So I went through a skilled visa. Um, Project management was something I loved. 
But working in HR really got my interest as well. And especially then working from production to beauty, just seeing the shift there. Anyway, it still wasn't the right role for me. Um, and then my skilled visa came through. I worked at the Law Society a little bit, um, looking after a few different areas, but in particular, starting to work with some of their female leaders. Um, right. And we realised that there, was never, there wasn't a forum for all these female solicitors to come together and actually to share. So we set something up and I loved it. It was mm. fabulous. But it wasn't a DNI job. And I think I'd started to really kind of hone in to say, okay, this is actually where I want to take my next step. A role then came up at the Minerals Council, which was a peak industry association representing um, coal and metalliferous mines around the country. I knew nothing about mining, except I will have the caveat that my father um, is a geography and geology teacher. So a little bit was known and Often my um, my holidays growing up were being taken down a quarry in Wales as a field trip. <laughs> so there was a tiny bit of knowledge, not much. Um, Your mum must have been delighted. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I do remember the call and they were like, oh, this is fabulous. <laughs> it, it was quite incredible because I still never forget my first couple of weeks. I started as being the operations manager looking after membership and having the conversation with the CEO to say, well, what is the proportion of women working in the sector? Right. Said, well, we don't actually really know, but we think it's about 3%. Right, okay. You know, that's a problem. What's being done about it? And they said, well, nothing in New South Wales at the moment, um, but would you prepare to look at something? And I had the complete imposter syndrome of going, well, I'm not prepared to do this, but this is such a great opportunity. Why not? So went into the board um, and said to them, can we shine a spotlight on this? I can see that Western Australia um, has actually launched a, um, a Women in Mining Awards. Could that be something we could maybe bring over to New South Wales to start looking at role models and shining a spotlight on that? And I think at some point we need to start looking at some data, maybe a bit of benchmarking, um, but I'm not going to sit here and pretend I, I know the answers. I don't. So with your permission as a board, I'd like implementation leaders from all your organisations to help me form a bit of a steering committee to be the people to actually have the answers. So Women in Maritime was born. Um, sorry, Women in Mining was born. No. Not Maritime. Women in Mining was born. Next, um, that's, uh, that's next month. That's yeah. the next one. <laughs> and oh, hold on. Hold, hold on. So you, you, you literally did, you, you put that all on there off your own back. Yeah. You just, and it even, yeah, I just had to, to kind of catch that there. So you, you you were, you tried to do obviously kind of not force anyone's hand, but you, you tried to push this forward completely off your own back. Did you have any, was there anyone backing you up or was this all on, all in your head? My CEO backed me up, but I think also the fact is like I could see that other areas are starting to do this um, and we could see there was momentum growing. So it's kind of, let's, Let's give this a go. I mean, there, there was I ran the risk of the board turning around and saying no, but they didn't. They said yes, and we suddenly had the backing of BHP Billiton, of Bancor, yeah. of Rio Tinto, some of the biggest mining giants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it did help that other states were doing that. Um, WA was doing an awards, and I was certainly not going to pretend to set this up from scratch. I kind of utilised their model, but brought it over um, to New South Wales. But more than that, we had to look at a strategy. So we started to say, okay, well, how can this look? And I utilised that steering committee. We started running networking events 
all around the state to actually bring women in to have these honest conversations to start looking more at role models. The awards then um, were fabulous. We brought in a lot of men to start having the conversation as well because we know the power of allies is absolutely critical. And it was a really exciting space to be in. We also start, we knew that mental health was a big issue. And we started to say, okay, well, we're looking at women in mining that needs to be a very strong spotlight, but we also need to look at mental health as well. So we started to look about that, that kind of health and safety space, um, looking at what sort of mental health strategies we could build. Um, and I was there for four years. Um, in that time, the women in mining, it grew and grew and grew. We were doing network, more and more networking events. The awards we launched, and it's really exciting, the awards are still going now. Um, And it it was quite fabulous seeing some members of that initial steering committee actually win um, awards this year, and particularly one of them. She won the Exceptional Women in Mining Award. I was like, oh, that's really quite powerful to see. Um, And... That continued to grow and grow. The awards then turned into um, an Australia-wide award as well, where each state would run their state-based awards, and then all the winners would come together to be celebrated, and there would be an Australian um, Women in um, Resources Award as well. So that was really, it's been really quite powerful. It's, it's been still going. So we shone spotlight on mental health as well and continue to develop that and learn from the minds what the barriers were that being faced them. Um, in Australia, there was um, a lot of sensitivity and understandable sensitivity around um, our Aboriginal population, yes. um, yeah. especially in terms of the mining sector where we were mining on Aboriginal land often. So we were really to bring them in to make sure that um, they were being employed um, and that they had the skills to make sure they could get to employment. So we worked very closely with the government to set up an MOU I was there for four years um, and I was very used to lobbying government and then I had the opportunity to actually go working government for a bit on the other side of things. Um, I should also know at the time I was um, going through a bit of a battle to try and fall pregnant. Um, I'd been going through IVF, so I thought, you know what, now's the time to kind of maybe take that step back, but let's go and work in government because I'd love to understand when I'm lobbying how do I actually, how does that process work? How can I actually really be getting white papers read out and bills read out in government? So yeah. I worked in um, in policy for about six months and then um, my daughter arrived an hour after I left work um, at, a, <laughs> at a food fighters gig. So she made a, <laughs> an entrance. <laughs> she was early, but... <laughs> We, we, we get two things from that. It means that you either either means that the, the Foo Fighters gigs start really early or you work pretty hard and you work late. Yeah, probably that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. A really fabulous time. I, I continued volunteering for women in mining whilst I took a couple of months off. Um, I then kind of quite liked the policy space, to be honest. It was quite yeah. interesting and I wanted to work a little bit close to home in Australia. Um, the distances are so big. I wanted to be very actually close to home and we were living a bit north of Sydney. Um, a council, a local council was going through a merger. They needed a project manager to come in. And I thought something I actually haven't really worked on is my people management skills. I had one um, person I managed when I was in um, the mining sector 
but I hadn't actually ever managed a big team before, especially of project managers. And we were looking at a lot of kind of community and inclusive strategies that we need to really bring together. And that was a big eye-opener. It was a big, big, steep learning curve for me. I've gone from literally not managing to managing a team full team um, and large teams underneath that. Um, and I was what, very fortunate. What, what was that within? Was that what, what area was that? Was that with diversity as well? Or Yeah, it was. Um, but it was in a local council environment, which was slightly different as well. Um, but lots of learnings, lots of learning you bring in. And I, it was town planning that I was looking at. So still that planning feeling, but looking at more like inclusive policies for the whole community and what could we be doing to make sure um, we're accessible as a community, how um, our build environment is inclusive. So I started to look at obviously some other areas around disability. Um, mental health still was a big thing and unemployment as well um, and the mental health impacts of unemployment around that community it was a very interesting time I met some beautiful people um, the biggest thing for me was really trying to get to that next stage of leadership skills where I was managing teams and I was extremely fortunate my team was awesome um and I tried to create an environment where it was very much call me out if I'm not doing something right but let's always move forward let's empower each other let's work collaboratively just because I'm the manager doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to have the answers I absolutely wouldn't expect to um so let's set up this environment where we can discuss and progress so that was exciting but I really wanted to kind of go back into a sector I feel that Government was really, really exciting. But for me, I wanted to really kind of go back into diversity in a sector. And the Property Council of Australia was advertising a contract role for um, a diversity program manager to come in and roll out a strategy and diversity programs across the whole of Australia, which was a really exciting opportunity. The barriers that you had... I don't want to get too far away from it before kind of bring it back, but so within mining to start with, and obviously within um, you went into to government and the lobbying side, yes. policy side, sorry, and then into a, a local government, and then yeah. obviously going in again nationwide. Did you did you see the same barriers or similar barriers within different industries? Then absolutely, absolutely. Um, the biggest barriers were, if we talk about mental health, around stigma and resilience, they're just not wanting to talk about it. Around gender, it was really around that progression piece. Um, right. In some sectors, we knew that the, the recruitment was working. We were getting women into some sectors, probably more around government, but then they weren't being progressed. So what was happening there? In mining, we had obviously the battle of, we weren't getting women even in. So that was really about that role model piece. Property was a bit of a, an eclectic mix where women were falling into the sector by accident. It wasn't a pathway of choice. They didn't necessarily realise it as students the range of opportunities that were available in property. You didn't just have to be in real estate or a developer um, or an architect. You could be in graphic design, but that could take you to architecture. 
you could be in marketing, you could be in HR, you could be in finance. There's this raft of opportunities and transferable skills. And I think the similarity between all the sectors I've worked in is really this focus on STEM Um, and really making sure that students are aware that STEM subjects are transferable. Um, But there are going to be certain um, career choices you're going to make where you're going to have needed certain skill sets, especially around maths. You can't necessarily go into some sectors and go, I don't have a maths background because you're going to fall short and then you're not going to progress. And that's been very similar. But I think a lot of the barriers have been around this very male-dominated sectors where there's no um, knowledge or understanding of how to actually get up to that senior level. So often they leave. There hasn't been necessarily policies and flexibility in place for women, but also for the men, because it always it shouldn't always be for the women to actually take that extend, extended maternity leave. It, there should be shared parental policies in place. Yeah. And it's really about having those very honest conversations with the men as well to say, this is okay for you. But also more than that, it's not just focused around childcare. There's also care responsibilities, and that's open to absolutely everybody um we all have care responsibilities in some capacity and it's making sure that organizations are adaptable to that and that has been a very very consistent theme throughout and it's been interesting to see that I feel after working in law mining theater government and property and now maritime it has run throughout But what is refreshing is some sectors are more willing to have those conversations than others. And I feel that as we are developing and as we're changing this year in particular has has taught us we need to be extremely adaptable and resilient and flexible and inclusive. I'm starting to see as across Australia and the UK, we are becoming more inclusive. We're more willing to have those conversations. And we're more willing to have it at a very fast pace. And that's exciting. Yeah, There's opportunities. Yeah, brilliant. So uh, in terms of you, the, the obviously when you came back, mm-hmm. um, you, you joined Maritime UK, was it was it March or April this year? Yes, March I joined Maritime so UK. You, you joined so. in the middle of a, just a small thing, just a small pandemic. Um, I mean, really yeah. To, to, move, to move, not even country, but continent, and then back into to London. How how the hell did you manage that? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> it's an easy job. Let's be honest. Program manager for diversity for Maritime UK. It's, it's an easy job anyway, isn't it? Never mind all of this. <laughs> it's, been, um, it's, it's taught me a lot about myself. Um, the move itself was actually huge. I think if I'd thought about it, no, actually I wouldn't have changed it. I always knew we were going to come home. And there was a number of reasons for that. I'm a dual citizen. of. I became a citizen when I was in Australia. My two girls are dual citizens. They were born in Australia, but because of me, they're both British citizens. Yeah, yeah. My husband isn't. He's an Australian citizen. And I'm very much about walking the talk in all aspects of my life. And it was never going to be fair that the three of us were all dual and meant we could literally move easily between countries and he couldn't. I didn't like that. So we had to level the playing field in his house and that was a reason to come back. 
there was never going to be the right time but we decided before the girls got too old and really got kind of embedded in to the school system it made sense to come back as they were just kind of starting their journey and to be a bit closer to my family um as we know distances are so big in Australia that we didn't actually have any family close by to us our closest family lived five hours away so we thought if there's any better time whilst the girls are so young to be around their grandparents would be fabulous um we had this crazy project wall set up in our house and it's actually funny when we put our house up for sale in Australia one of the advertising pictures actually has our agile wall set along the back of all the tasks we had to do to move um (laughs) <laughs> the hardest thing for me about the move actually was I thought I was coming home and the UK had changed a lot since I'd left 12 years before and I'd changed a lot. Oh, I'd left as a single early 20 or mid-20 female and who was just starting their career journey. I'd had some knocks and bruises along the way in the, in the 12 years I was in Australia and but I came back suddenly through the lens of being a mother of being a wife of family has changed and moved the friendship circle I had is obviously they've all matured and moved around the world as well and that to me was the biggest shock even the little thing of I wanted to go and buy milk and I didn't know where to actually go I got so used to the supermarkets in Australia I knew exactly I could go five minutes down the road and and there was Woolies and I could buy milk and bread (laughs) over here it's like I've got no idea where Sainsbury's is. I don't even know, like, obviously, sat nav. But that's that kind of that mindset. I actually don't know where I am. It was <laughs> yeah, a yeah. shift. Um, yeah, so it was it was a bit of a, a trying time. I was extremely lucky to get the job at Maritime UK. Um, it was um, it's a one year contract role, which was going to provide an amazing opportunity to bring in my skill set, my passion, take it forward. And I love the maritime sector. It feels very familiar um, and it's this rough opportunities here. It was a bit unique when you start a role and a couple of weeks later you go into lockdown. But <laughs> I, I, I honestly, I can't say and complain about anything. I have been unbelievably fortunate that I've been in a role doing something I love. Yeah. I've been able to work from home. And I'd be able to progress conversations in such a big way. I don't think we would have been able to do if we were in a pre-March environment. We were still focusing very much on having physical events, but actually that's not inclusive. Um, and suddenly we're having these networks of these, I call them my positive disruptors, because I just I love my networks. They're great. <laughs> and um, it's up really. Do you think you've seen that there? Do you think that? So obviously before before we started recording, you were saying that um, things have obviously progressed in terms of being able to adapt mm-hmm. within the last, what, eight months um, mm-hmm. that you've, you've noticed. Do you think, I know obviously it's industry-wide, it's not going to have helped many people, um, but do you think it helped, helped you in your role and perhaps put things in place or come up with ideas because everyone had everyone was that you're working with or in your network was currently having to adapt anyway how they were working. So then new new strategies coming in, new ideas coming in, people were more receptive to it. I know it's, it's hard to say because you didn't have, say, eight months prior to it to, to, to test against, but 
were you were you quite happy with that that yeah. side of it I've been I've been so lucky that I've been able to work with phenomenal people across the sector and I feel humbled every single day by the people that I get to speak to. Um, it really is quite amazing hearing their stories and the fact that they're willing to share their stories, but they want to make change. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's been an absolutely phenomenal experience. Um, and certainly when looking at the initial structure of how diversity maritime could be formed, back in March and how we could get to, I never expected we'd be in a stage now of networks of hundreds of people who would want to come together and they are honestly committed to driving this change um, and sustainable change. It's, yeah. yeah, I'm absolutely blown away every single day. The conversation you have, the people want to learn, they want to share and it's... Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. What, what would you say? So, if you go back to the, the mining side of things, you, mm. you said that one of the one of the kind of key strategies was the role model piece yeah. within. Obviously, we all know maritime and mining; they're, they're both male dominated industries. Um, so, using what you'd learned from from mining with the role model side of it, mm. what 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 does that look like, and what what can that be for for maritime? Absolutely. Role models are absolutely key and role models across the piece are absolutely critical, Um, not just for the next generation, but for the current generation as well, to show where you can actually get to, to share that learning piece. We're certainly looking at the whole role model um, within the Women in Maritime Network, but also across our Pride Network and across our ethnicity network as well. It's, It's critical right the way through um but also mental health and we um during maritime uk week since it was only last month it feels like a long time ago now last month we ran a series of webinars and one of them that was an incredibly eye-opening experience for me was the mental health webinar and a number of members of the network put their hand up and were very open to having very honest conversations about their own pathway. And suddenly they became role models. They talked about the stigma. They talked about the fact that their own mental health journey, we all have mental health, we all have varying levels of mental health, but they were very open about their own personal barriers. And I think we talk about role models and so often we look at female role models role models but we all need a role model in some way it doesn't matter the color of our skin our background we use role models to see where we aspire to be um, and to help the next generation so I think it's a critical piece but it's about a collaborative piece as well we don't necessarily need to have a women in maritime role model program it's an inclusive one it's talking about role models across the whole program um but yeah it's absolutely critical. So in terms of we're eight, eight months in to your, to your role, or you're, sorry, you're eight months in, um, what have, I, I, I remember reading it and I was just like, can't believe some of the, like it's not a long time at all, but some of the things that you put in place. So I mean, what 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 are you, what are you, what are you guys celebrating in terms of the ones that you've had, the progress you've made 
Um, I know obviously there'll be, there'll be things coming beforehand that you've helped push through, but what, what's, what's changed so far? I think seeing the growth of the networks and the buy-in from the sector to actually join these, these safe space networks. And the, the power of the network is, is incredible. But it's also then about saying, okay, well, how are we going to turn these conversations into actions? And so developing um, working groups as well that live across the piece. So I've, I've got four current networks. Um, I've got the Women in Maritime Network, the Ethnicity Network, the Pride Network, and our Mental Health Network. I've then got four working groups. So anything that comes out of them where we can't signpost, we've got these four working groups, one that looks at recruitment, one that looks at retention and progression, one that's really looking at one of our flagship programs, the Pledge and the Charter, which will be a big win when we we expand this program next year, and also communications and events. Um, The way that we've progressed the conversation throughout, seeing those networks grow just since the initial um, launch of them back in, well, we launched in May, but we had first network meetings start in June, July. We summed them, we started with 25 people. The last, well, we're about to hold the next round next month. What are the networks, sorry, for anyone that's listening that doesn't know what, what's, what's out there, what are the networks? Of course. So our networks are these safe space positive disruptors, but it's people from across the whole of the maritime sector to come together and we shine a spotlight on a particular area of diversity, but not necessarily with blinkers on. We'd like to still discuss other areas, but it's really kind of the challenge to say... This, this is working in one area um, of the sector. Can we expand this to be across the piece? It's my positive disruptors where they have very honest conversations about barriers being faced. And then we talk about possible solutions for how we can actually break down those barriers. But they are safe spaces. And so we have four. We have our Women in Maritime um, network and that's kind of our flagship one that's where the the whole foundation for this program came from and that network has continued to grow as we we are not even there yet with the gender balance piece but we also have one that looks at mental health we have one our ethnicity network um, and that started as being called our bane and maritime network which was mm-hmm. launched um, but we asked the network what they wanted to be called I certainly was never going to sit there and dictate what a network needs to be called. It's their network, it's their space. They need to feel comfortable to to name the network how they see fit. The same with our pride network. That's our LGBT plus network. Um, Networks have between 100 to 200 participants at the moment in each Mm -hmm. one. And it's an open movement. The door is always open if you can't attend a network meeting, you're not going to be off the network. It's very <laughs> much about themes and coming together to share, but also the, the power of the ally. We say that come to our prime network as an ally as well. We need to make sure the balance that is not all allies coming to the networks, but yep. it really is about bringing everyone together to be inclusive. So we have the four networks. Uh, we meet once a quarter and we're very much open to anyone that wants to be part of the dialogue. The power of this current environment is people can come to the network in their authentic self. They're all held via Zoom at the moment. If you want to come and have your camera off and you don't want to talk, but you want to put notes in the chat, that's absolutely fine. If you want to come and just 
take kind of a back seat and just listen, that's absolutely fine. You come how you want to come into the network. Um, and then also we always share with an update afterwards. We never share recordings, they're safe spaces, but we'll just send a bit of an update. This is what we discussed, but really importantly, this is how we think we're going to take it to the next level. Have we got this right? Um, and then we have four working groups. Now, our working groups are smaller. Um, they're kind of, I don't want to say my doing groups, but they live across the piece. So that's where we start to actually form initiatives and policies. And we want to make sure we're not working in silos. So if we know that very similar barriers are being faced hypothetically through our, um, our women's network and our mental health network, it's maybe it's a solution that we say, okay, well, this is going to live across these networks to start with. We then test it with the other networks to say, is this a barrier you're also facing? Is right. this a diversity program? Or is it something where we just shine a spotlight on a particular area? So the four working groups have now met for the third time. As another checkpoint to make sure again we're not working in silos, we're not reinventing the world if we don't need to. The chairs of the four networks and the chairs of the four working groups all form a task force, and that's our diversity maritime task force. Um, And we want to make sure we are always reflecting, understanding the current situation, but also looking forward as well. Um, So we use it as a bit of a testing piece. So we are still very new in terms of a program, but we've got fabulous foundations that we're, we're being formed on with the Women in Maritime Network who have been having these conversations now since 2017 when that task force was kind of first set up. But it's an exciting space to be yeah. in and it's going to continue to grow. Um, now, the reason we're, we're looking at these four areas initially is we know that diversity and inclusion is so big. Mm-hmm. We don't want to dilute any of the conversations that we're having, but where do you start? So when I first started to build the program, I had conversations with the Women in Maritime Network to say, well, organically, what conversations are you starting to look at? Because if you're starting to look at mental health, it makes sense to shine a spotlight on that because that's obviously something that's coming out of the network members. It's about collaboration, it's not about dictation. So yep. that's why we initially set up these ones. Now, I'll be honest, at the start, we weren't going to be activating that Ethnicity Maritime Network this year. Um, it was in the pipeline. Black Lives Matter was obviously a massive change and a massive movement. And we had to have some, I had to have some very honest conversations of, well, is it the right time to set this network up on the back of that? Um, have we created another barrier before we've even started but if it's right for the sector, then we will absolutely do it. And we had a lot of conversation through those net other three networks and through the wider sector to say, isn't that right? And it was. And oh my goodness, that first network meeting was powerful. Yeah. We had 95 people that came in and shared their stories and it's continued to grow. And goodness me, I'm in awe of all these networks and everyone yeah. that will come in and share. So well, it's exciting. It says, it says, it's so exciting. And it's, as you say, so Women in Maritime has obviously been set up, did you say 2017 there? Yeah. 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 Yes. But still, just the fact that it's, yeah, there's there's a lot, there's a lot to be done, obviously, within within the industry. Yeah. Um, everyone, everyone's aware of that. Um, I mean, in terms of people, as you say, getting involved, if anyone's listening, where where do they go? How do, how do they get involved in, in, in that or any of the networks? 
Absolutely. So we do have a sign-up page on the website. Um, so it's www.diversityinmaritime.uk. And that is a web portal which provides um, information on all the networks, what the objectives are and the aims of those networks, how to get involved. We're very open and transparent. We always put these the dates up. We always put what the theme of those network meetings are going to be about. And we encourage people just to come along and try it. If it's not for you, absolutely fine, but do come along. So our next two that we've got coming up in a couple of weeks, we've got our ethnicity network meeting on the 2nd of December. We've got our mental health network meeting on the 8th of December and our Pride and our Women's Network come back together in January. Yeah. We always make sure we continue the dialogue. So we have a LinkedIn page as well, um, Diversity in Maritime, where we put regular updates. And we have our Twitter account as well, NUK Diversity. And we encourage anyone to follow that. Um, but I always love to hear from people. Any ideas, um, come and speak to me. I'd love yeah, to hear brilliant. you. Brilliant. I'm, I'm sure you. I'm sure you will. Um, you know, it may not be inundated. I don't know how big the, po- the podcast is, but yeah, you make you make it two or three. You never know. Um, two or three is great. That's down the chain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, in terms of like, I don't want to be. I don't want to be t- too focused on on any one of the, of the networks. Obviously, they're all equally as important. Obviously, the women in maritime pieces. We've got uh, mutual mutual contacts, and some of the, some of the conversations we've had, and the barriers for for, for women. Mm. Obviously, the role models piece is, is excellent, and I know a few that are definitely role models. Um, even yourself, you're going to be a role model for 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 many to 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 look to, and and just even your openness and honesty about earlier on, you had no there's no no reason to, to not no reason sorry no pressure to share obviously the, the pressures you had trying to have, have start your family but again it's to hear these things sometimes it's just people being honest that that yeah. makes a big big difference for for you coming in from a, a completely different I mean I've lived in Australia uh, WA worked in mining I, I, I get that side of it when it's Obviously, the, the male-dominated side was what I was referring to there, sorry. Coming in from that and seeing the, the progress you've made, honestly, when you come in and not trying to put too much pressure on yourself here, but where do you see the levels between the two or the, the comparisons between the two industries? Is maritime, within from what you can see within, within the UK, is it better or does it have... A good few steps to go to to reach the same levels of. I think question. So apologies. <laughs> no, it's a great question, and it really is. I think in some ways the maritime sector is very advanced, and in some ways it's only just starting the journey. Um, but I think what has been quite amazing about the maritime sector is the willingness to have these conversations. It's hard to compare like for like because when I was in the maritime sector, I started there in 2011. And in terms of a world, it was a very different world back in 2011. Even 2019 was a different world to the world we're living in. But I think maritime is a global sector. We can learn a lot from other countries, but we can also share a lot that's happening here. Um, Where we want to get to, to be honest, I'd love my jobs not to need be needed anymore. I'd love diversity, inclusion and equality just to be a way of life that we don't need to shine a spotlight because it just as is. 
people have a seat at the table who should have a seat at the table. We've got to a stage where people can be transferable skills. We've got to a stage where the playing field has been levelled. Do I think that will happen in my lifetime? I'd love to hope so. Who knows? Yeah. Because if I, if I had the conversation with you last year, this time last year even, would I be sitting here in a completely virtual environment, bringing networks together where I've got... Um, people calling in who are out at sea, some people working in an office, some people working um, on uh, in ports. I would have laughed and said, yeah, okay, that'll probably happen in the future. So I think right now we don't know. Yeah. I think more than ever, let's not stop talking about diversity and inclusion. It is so, so important to progress. And even when the world comes back to the new norm, we need to continue what we've learned this year in terms of inclusion. We need to not lose that. We need to progress it. We need to make sure we are leveling the playing field and we continue to do that. And I think the barrier that I have seen in some other sectors is often when the world becomes a bit better, somehow diversity and inclusion is forgotten. And so my biggest thing would be let's not forget it. Let's just continue. Yeah. Let's keep pushing ahead. And what I mean, I would say from the outside looking in, um, for, in terms of, of, I suppose we are involved in, in the industry, but not any of the, the key areas, obviously within recruitment. But from from the outside looking in, companies, just not even within maritime, companies are very much open to putting or are being part of a movement. So mm-hmm. I, anyone I've, I've seen some really awesome things from like BP recently, um, a, few, a few other companies. And then with the LBGT, there's been so so much brought through or brought forward in the last year. The culture change within a company is a completely different thing. Um, now, you, given your, your over 10 years experience within diversity, do you have any really, like really good examples? Is there anything that springs to mind of of companies that have, that have created the culture and maybe what they did. So, for for example, someone, if there's a ship manager listening or if um, there's a, a, an owner, someone from an owner, and they they want to put that in place within their office or within their company, what 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 can they do? I know they can do things, but where have you seen success? Really, that's, I suppose that's probably what I'm trying to say. Yeah, of course. Um, that's always a tricky one. I think... Success comes from the top and buying from the top. If you don't have those senior leaders bought in, to be honest, you're probably not going to make that sustainable change. Um, I always hate to have that kind of negative lens on it, but it's true. But it's about empowering the staff to be part of the conversation, to feel that they are safe to call things out and call things back in again. Yeah. Um, but if the leadership isn't brought in, that's where it will stop. Um, something we actually did in the property sector, which worked really, really well, was having a male champions of change group. Um, the male champions of change movement was actually established through um, the previous sex discrimination officer in Australia. Um, and the power of that, when you get those senior leaders actually brought in on a strategic level to say, okay, as a whole sector, this is what we need to look at. And then the 
even better than that, having an actual implementation leader within their organisations to actually be accountable for it. So they're accountable as a senior leader. They've put their hand up. They've signed a pledge to say they're going to be. But when you start to see those implementation leaders, that's when you know, okay, well, the change can happen. And that implementation leader can be very senior. Um, it's also then about saying, okay, well, then how can we progress? And I think when an organisation starts to look at succession planning, and progression techniques, especially around protected characteristics, when they're looking to progress um, women and when they're looking to progress um, people from um, an ethnic minority um, who are black, the power of that, you start to say, okay, they actually are brought in to their employees because they want to get them up to that level. But again, it goes back to you need to have the senior leaders brought in. Yeah. And not just in the tick box, they actually want to do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you said that earlier on as well. It's not it's not about tick. It's, it's all well and good creating tick boxes and it has to be done to, to an extent or to understand what's going on, but it needs to be far, far more than that. Now, again, before we, we, we had a wee chat, obviously, before we started recording, but... You were saying that within your, your role within Maritime UK, you're looking at other sectors. Um, yeah. We've just put a podcast up um, this morning um, when we're recording this with a gentleman out in Singapore, John Logan, and he was referring to, for technology change, they're referring to, or they're, they're taking in different, um, they're taking in different advancements within other sectors. So within aviation, within even Formula One, for example, was... was was um, an example he gave for you coming in again it, it must be so it must be such a big change for you coming in from a different country again it's an English-speaking country it's there's a lot of similarities but there's a hell of a lot of differences as well but coming in within Maritime UK and then working with the, the, the likes of Rail you were saying earlier on like where are some of the really good things that you're seeing within the UK that Maritime can take an ex- can use as an example and pull from. Yeah, I'll use um, actually the rail sector is a great example, um, and we're starting to partner with them in a number of our areas as well. We're lucky with um, the Department for Transport that we do have a place where we can actually learn across other sectors. Um, I'll use a big example from our mental health work. Um, I talked before that we need to kind of benchmark where we were up to in the mental health journey. So we've actually partnered with Safer Highways um, to launch our first mental health benchmark survey. And we did that because we wanted to be able to benchmark ourselves against ourselves, but also against other sectors. And um, there's been a number of sectors who've actually signed up to that. And it benchmarks you against the thriving at work standards um, that were... um, John Farmer's recommendations with at the PM's um, strategy a few years ago. And so involved with that survey, it's us, water, rail, roads, construction and utilities. And we can really learn from the other sectors, but also we can actually start to celebrate what our sector's doing because we know they do some fabulous things in mental health. So it provides us an opportunity to share that um, in a very similar uh, forum with those other sectors. So this is what we're doing as a sector. But also, can we learn from you? How can we now actually take what you're doing and bring it into this dialogue? 
So I think a lot of those sectors are having those conversations about mental health. And I was speaking with um, Simon Blake, who's the CEO of um, Mental Health First Aid England the other day. He's coming to speak at the Mental Health Network um, in a few weeks. And it was interesting talking to him about the benchmark survey and the importance of taking stock of where we're up to. And you know what? If it's not pretty, that's fine. At least we know where we're up to. And then we know where we need to get to. Because if we're at a stage where we go, you know what, we're doing everything great. Fabulous. But then why do we even do it? Why do we do the survey in the first place? (laughs) How are we going to learn? So it's always about that moving forward. Um, so yeah, I think does that answer the question? I feel like I've just meandered off. No, no, yeah, totally, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, some sometimes it, it's the bigger picture is the most important part of it, and obviously what what you're doing. You you had obviously earlier on we were saying about the kind of why diversity within Maritime UK. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've, you've obviously you've put points in so far with, within that, but what does what does that mean for you, or even just for Maritime UK? Absolutely. Maritime sector is so diverse but so not inclusive or hasn't been so inclusive and I think now we've got so much momentum to make it inclusive let's continue why diversity in maritime why not we want to have that pipeline of highly skilled diverse people to support it into the future it makes business sense Um, it makes global sense so let's recruit, retain and progress the best talent we possibly can without having a blinker on that this might only be from one particular um, protected characteristic or not. Um, It's about bringing everyone together. It's about collaborating. It's about sharing best practice, but it's about also having very honest conversations about barriers. I'm really lucky with diversity in maritime. It's a really exciting space because it's going to continue to evolve. At the moment, we're shining a spotlight on those four areas and that's not going to stop. That's going to continue to grow and we'll shine a spotlight on other areas as well. It's a continuous movement. Um, whilst Maritime UK is obviously looking at skill set in the UK and retaining our best people in the UK, we can't also be so naive to know that Maritime isn't global. And I said I go back to being in Australia and maritime being very familiar. I had friends who were seafarers. I had friends who were in the Navy there. Yeah. Um, you live and you work around the water the whole time. You you automatically you go, you learn to sail. I learned, well, badly to sail. <laughs> I, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> You're surrounded by it. You, in terms you, need, of, you need to remember the, the potential people that are going to be listening to this. So it's, it's like, <laughs> okay, 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 did you? But <laughs> no, it was very bad. But um, I think it covers it covers everyone out there. I mean, even in the the mining sector, you look at how you're actually going to be moving coal. It's by ships. You've got ports that you're with yep. the whole time, um, like around Newcastle. So I think it was was very much there it was very much kind of ingrained even when I worked in um, the local government for a bit it was around climate change it was around flooding it was around our coastal environments and what we were going to do about that Um, especially on the central coast we had lots of peninsulas but we had a lot of water (laughs) as well we had a lot of ferry operators so it was was very much kind of entrenched the whole time so it's, it's an exciting space I love it I feel that I can bring my skill set in oh my goodness I'm learning every single day 
And isn't it wonderful to have the opportunity to be able to do that? It certainly is. It certainly is. I mean, I'm conscious of time here. I don't want to be taking up too much of your time, but looking ahead, we can we can kind of go for that. Looking ahead, what do you think is the future for the sector? I think it is a diverse, inclusive sector. I firmly believe it is. I think we're going to be looking at how we can progress this conversation, how we can have the playing field. And I know I keep going back to that, but it's it's so important. That's what it's about. It's making sure people do have a seat at the table. It's about recruiting and retaining our best and role, using them as role models for this yeah. sector and for other sectors as well. It is about transferable skills. About let's retain our best talent that we possibly can and get them in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, brilliant. Uh, before we go, uh, every every episode we've, we've been asking just a couple of kind of quick, quicker questions um, just to get a wee bit more insight into yourself. So the first one's around influences. Now, I'm a, an avid reader um, and these days it's, there's a ton more audiobookness um, rather than just always on the Kindle. But is there anything that you, I mean, who, who if, do you have any inf- influences or anyone that you, you always look to? Is there any really good books that you've been reading of late that you would, you would recommend? Oh, Maybe not books necessarily, but there's two people I, I really kind of aspire to be like. Um, Jacinda Ardern, let's call her out as this amazing PM of New Zealand. I mean, she is awesome. Yeah. Anytime I kind of think about my direction, where I want to be, I look at her journey. Yes, she's a political, but she's also very much about inclusive. She was an independent. She rose up from not going into politics, but really getting there. Um, and who can fault Kamala Harris? <laughs> I mean, she's absolutely incredible. Um, so I'd say they're two of my biggest influences. But on a personal level as well, um, it was actually my grandfather. Right. My grandfather was um, a colonel in the right. army, um, and he was the most inclusive grandfather you could ever have. Um, he would call me out on things, but he would let me call it back in as well. Um, mm-hmm. He always believed that there should be that balance. It was interesting that my granny um, was in finance and there was never ever a question that both of them would work full time. Um, they balanced my mum and her sister and the childcare arrangements. And goodness, this was back in the 50s and 60s. Um, and it was, it was quite incredible. So he was an absolute inspiration to show that you can rise up, but you can also have, you can be a caring father and grandfather as well. As a colonel, he would go out and fight, but he would always come back and hug when every time we saw him. <laughs> so that's he amazing. Was, that's lovely. That's, that's, I like that. That's, that's the best one I've heard yet. I've got to be honest. <laughs> um, okay, and then the, the last question will be, What's your first your first memory or your first story around um, the marine industry, whether it's been on a vessel or, or anything like that? It's probably going to come from your childhood, I'd imagine, but can, is there anything that springs to mind? Oh, it was actually going on, um, it was going on a boat around Sydney Harbour and it was a cross-industry um, event, because I can't remember what the actual event was, but we had some senior executives on there and we I was brought on as quite a, a junior level at the time is when I first started and the willingness for these senior executives to have these conversations but also just being on the water 
was quite incredible. Being a Londoner, born and bred, to be honest, I didn't, I've never really been out um, <laughs> on the water that much before. But um, it was, um, yeah, that was probably one of my first memories. And at the time, someone said, always look up. Um, and it was interesting at the time, I didn't know what it meant. But then it later kind of dawned on me that when I worked in the property sector, he always now look up to the top of buildings and see how things were built and where the background was of them being built. Um, really? so yeah, that was probably one of my first my first mm-hmm. sector memories, positive yeah. one. There's probably some that are not so positive, but <laughs> we, won't, we won't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll keep it on the positive note. Well, Chrissy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story and congratulations on an incredible eight months and in the hardest of circumstances as bringing your, your family back to the UK and then taking on a rather big job. So you, you deserve, you deserve all the plaudits and you've done great. And yeah, I can't thank you enough for, for joining us. Oh no, Hopefully. thank you so much. It's been fabulous oh, to you. Um, I really appreciate it and stay well and safe and speak soon. Shall do. Thanks again. <laughs>